One of the most famous verses in the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave. That's as far as you need to go. For God so loved the world that he gave. We are never more like God than when we give. Think about that. Because probably if you were to vote right now, you would say, no, I was actually more like God a moment ago when I was worshiping him. No, actually, you're more like God at the end of the service when you give. Because love always gives. People who give don't always love. But love always gives. Every parent knows this. Every parent knows this. It is the nature of a good parent to give to their children in ways that are unprompted, uncalculated, unbounded, sometimes unsafe. It is the nature of love to give. So please keep this in mind. Giving to the Christian then is not so much a matter of obedience, it's a matter of alignment. We give not because we were told to, though that's a great place to start. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. We give because we are, over time, becoming more and more like the one who loved the world, and so he gave. So, so when we get to that point where giving is second nature and it is without boundaries, we are on that day more and more like God. Let's uh, play a game for a moment. Imagine you were suddenly to inherit $2 million. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, outside of pay your school bill... Um, what would you do if you suddenly inherited $2 million? About three, four months ago, I'm sitting in the office one day on a Thursday. It's one of the days I used to work on the message. Text goes off. It's my wife. She says, uh, honey, I think we just won $2 million. Dot, dot, dot. This is not bogus. Now, it is Lori's nature uh, to be conservative. She doesn't usually go for this kind of stuff. She's a glass-half-empty kind of person. And so when she thinks we've won $2 million, she's probably at the bank cashing the check, or she wouldn't say anything. But still not believing her, uh, I text back and said, what are you talking about? She said, Publisher's Clearinghouse. I texted back and said, we don't do Publisher's Clearinghouse. Her reply was, I forgot to tell you, I sent it in. So then I texted Nick, our son, and I said, are you anywhere near the house? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm home now. I said, check on your mom. <laughs> she thinks we just won $2 million. Uh, he said, I checked on her. She is pretty excited. She said that a minivan is going to pull up sometime before 5 o'clock and jump out with a big check for $2 million. She wants you to be here. <laughs> I texted back and said, I'm busy writing a message. I can't pull off for $2 million. 
When you get the check, text me, I'll come home. Finally, I called her and she said, no, honey, I am sure I've made the call that this sounds legit. I really want you to be here. And so in the back of my mind, I start thinking, you know, this is bogus, but there is still that faint hope that maybe she's right. You know, I mean, because everybody who ever wins always says I never win anything. Well, that's us. So I thought, well, maybe this is we're in the next I never won anything winner. So I started imagining what I would do with $2 million. Season tickets, Lucas Oil. I just started playing out the scenario. What would you do if you suddenly, shockingly, got $2 million? There's someone sitting next to you. <clears throat> Turn to that person and tell them what you would do with $2 million. Really, take about 30 seconds and tell them because you already know. All right, you guys. All right. That was more fun than church for some of you. Some of you got halfway through and, and all of a sudden that blank look on your face went, oh, yeah, the missionaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give to the missionaries too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my theory is that you would probably do with the $2 million what you are already doing with the money that you have. You, you, uh, probably the dollars would actually change. There'd be more zeros to be sure, but the percentages would be somewhat similar. So if you're living on 50 or 60% of what you make in a month's time, then you probably would live on 50 to 60% of $2 million, only the numbers would be larger. Whatever you gave away now, you'd probably give away the same percentage, only more dollars, but the same percentage. So I don't think that the percentages would fundamentally change. Back in, uh, uh, in uh, the 2002, Janet Polivi from the University of Toronto coined a phrase called the false hope syndrome. False hope syndrome, she said, was, was um, unrealistic expectations of self-change despite previous failures. <laughs> so she said we have inside of us an instinct that says that we ought to change, we love to change, and we need to change. And so we imagine in our mind uh, what it would look like if we change, and we start to change, only to find out that change is slower and harder and more radical than we imagined. And so she says we pull off. We tell ourselves that the conditions are such that we cannot change. But the beauty of it is, by wanting to change and by thinking about changing, we have already received some level of gratification. There's already some level of control, some feeling of optimism. That's right, that's right. If my conditions were to change, then I truly would be a different person. But the conditions are what they are, and so I am what I am. Uh, some years ago, I had a guy in my church named John. He's an old farmer, <clears throat> and he worked hard all week, and then he drank harder all weekend. So I go to see him one time in his house, and he says, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. I played the lotto. John, why do you want me to pray? He said, I need you to pray that a win. The lotto, he said, this time is worth more than a million dollars. 
And he said, Pastor, do you know what I could do with a million dollars? I could only imagine. Uh, he said, Pastor, if you pray and I win the lotto, I will give the church a thousand dollars. I thought, don't hurt yourself <laughs> for giving point zero 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 one percent. I checked. I said, John, you would not give the church $1,000. Yes, I would. No, you wouldn't. Yes, I would. John, are you giving now? Well, he said, I can't afford to give. But if I won a million dollars, then I could afford to give. That's the false hope syndrome. He tells himself that he's not really the person he could be or even the person he is. But the reason he is not the person he could be is because his conditions are what they are. If his conditions were to change, if he were suddenly to receive a million dollars, why then that would free up his generous spirit to be what it is, to give the church a thousand dollars. Do you see it? It's the false hope syndrome. So by sitting there on his couch, he's already receiving some gratification just from the mental picture of himself giving $1,000, even though he has not yet done anything. False hope syndrome. I think this is what happens whenever we play the game, what would you do with $2 million? We imagine that we would live a totally different kind of life when really it would be an extension of the same life now. In the last few weeks, I've drawn these elaborate pieces of artwork that look like this. Those of you in art wonder uh, either how I got so talented or what I was drinking. And I said in the past that, that the art of being a steward is learning how to take what God has given us and then how to bless it. That is to live within its means. And finally, to multiply what God has given us. So once I take it, and then I bless it, I live within its means, and I say, it is enough. And then I work with holy ambition to develop that. We said, I am growing my capacity to give. The, I think the mistake that I made in the last few weeks as I think about what I said was I always left the impression that giving came later, that we could in the early part of our lives spend all of our energy growing the capacity so that later, presumably when we're 50 and 60, then we could give. That's the false hope syndrome. The truth is, once our conditions change and our capacity is grown, we will probably do later what we're already doing now. So just like we spent time talking about growing our capacity, we have to talk about growing our ability to give at the top or the tip of the iceberg. And maybe the best place to start is simply to say that Whatever our capacity is, 
there must always be something of our capacity showing above the surface. No, an iceberg is never completely below the surface. There is always a little of it, at least, that is up above the surface. It's the part that everyone sees. My hunch is that in our church, as in most other evangelical churches, we have outgrown our capacity and we have underdeveloped our giving. What I mean is our capacity for giving has grown faster and larger than our actual amount. Most of us have had a stable income far longer than we have tithed on it. Most of us have already developed a skill set or an ability to do something to a far greater degree than we've developed the ability to give it away. Most of us through technology have found more margins in our schedules than we have donated to causes that we believe in. So I think that while we're developing our capacity in our 20s and 30s and 40s, we have to talk about how to develop giving proportionately. Enter the parable of the Good Samaritan. What intrigues me about this fellow is generosity. Guy comes up to Jesus one day and says, how do I inherit eternal life? Now understand, eternal life to a first century Jew does not mean go to heaven. It means the life of God. So what he's saying is, how do I get the life of God? How do I get that which is eternal inside of me? Jesus said, you got the law, how do you read it? Whenever Jesus says that, duck. The man says, well, there's two great commandments. One is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Jesus said, that's right, do that and you'll live. The man, because he's a lawyer, loves minutia. So he pushes back. He says, all right then. Who's my neighbor? It's a good question because every rabbi would have given him the same answer. How do you live? Love God, love others. And when the lawyer pushed back and said, good, then define others, every other rabbi of the day would have walked it back. He would have walked it back. He would have started outlining who others does not include. Jesus does exactly the opposite. He says there's a guy going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets jumped by thugs. They beat him up, take his money and his clothes, leave him half dead alongside the road. About an hour later, here comes a priest, also a Jew, looks over, sees the man, passes by on the other side of the road. A little bit later comes a Levite, sees the man, passes by on the other side of the road. Then he says... There comes a Samaritan. You know, don't you, that Jews and Samaritans hate one another. The Jews had a saying, the rabbis had a saying back in those days, he that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the flesh of swine. The Samaritan says Jesus is walking down the road, sees the man, looks over, 
goes over to him, gets down, bandages his wounds, pours on oil and wine. It was a healing device. Loads the man on top of his own donkey. So far as I know, there weren't two cedar donkeys. So it meant that now the Samaritan would walk while the Jew whom he was supposed to hate, he was taught to hate, is riding on his own transportation. He walks him into the city of Jericho where they are going. It is populated by Jews. When he gets into Jericho, he goes to an inn. He says to the innkeeper, I need a room. He nurses the guy for the rest of the night. And in the morning when he wakes up, he takes two days wages and puts it on the counter and says, this ought to be enough to cover for a few days until I get back. If it costs more than I expect, I will reimburse you for everything you invest in helping this man recover. Turns out Jesus not only answers the Jews' question, but he answers another one too. The question was, who's my neighbor? But the other question is, what does it mean to love him? When he goes by the man who was beat up on the side of the road... He doesn't go online and blog about poverty. He doesn't double-click here. He doesn't tweet. He doesn't make a rant. He doesn't take a position. He doesn't wonder, what's it going to cost me? He actually goes on the other side of the road. And what intrigues me is not so much the money, though that intrigues me. It's the time. The guy's day is shot. Caring for someone his parents taught him to hate. Then he loads him on his own mule, rides into a city populated by Jews. Kenneth Bailey writes, if you want the equivalent of this, imagine that a Native American's walking down the path. He sees a cowboy with two arrows in his back. He loads the cowboy onto his own mule, rides him into Dodge City, says to the saloon keeper, I need a room upstairs. He spends the rest of the night nursing the wounded cowboy says Kenneth Bailey, in the morning when the Native American goes to leave the saloon, what do you think all of the cowboys in Dodge City are thinking? You did this. And they will get their vengeance. What intrigues me is not just the time, it's the risk that a guy goes through to help somebody he was raised to hate. That is an enormous amount of giving, you guys. That is not simply an act. That is a heart that does that. It is a way of seeing people. It's not just a set of actions. That is not a spiritual discipline. That is a transformed heart. He is doing the only thing that makes sense to him. And he's giving extravagantly. And his giving is unbounded. It is unguarded. It's unprompted. It's unmotivated by anything outside of himself. And for all practical purposes, it is unsafe. 
So my question this morning is, how do I develop my capacity for giving like that? God is teaching me about this thing called, I've given my whole life. That part isn't new, but God is teaching me in the last few years of my life what giving looks like and how I might learn to develop or grow my capacity. I'll move as quickly, I promise, I'll move fast. The first kind of giving that God is teaching me or has taught me, I call systematic giving. Systematic giving is giving as the Lord prescribes on a regular basis, regular intervals, according to a ritual. God has given me something and I take from what God has given me and I give it back to God. It's a systematic giving. I do it systematically. Nothing ever changes. Not the amount... Not the way, not the outcome, everything is the same. There is another kind of giving that God has taught me over the years is called spontaneous giving. There will arise every now and then a cause, a need, a potential, a vision. And when I see it, it is as if God is saying to me, Steve, you can be part of that. I want you to participate in that vision. Would you give for that? Now, what's different about this is it isn't systematic. It doesn't happen at regular intervals, and it's not according to God's prescriptions. It's according to what I want to give, which leads to a third kind of giving that God is teaching me. I'm calling sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is when I am called to give beyond what I think I can afford. God will say, Steve, this is what I want you and Lori to do. My first response is, we can't afford that. His response is, I know it. You'll have to move some furniture. You'll have to push the boundaries in order to give more. But Steve, that's the point. You train yourself to love things by what you give to. So by giving more than you can afford, only happens once, I'm not doing it regularly, I'm not even doing it often, but by giving more than you can afford, you're learning to adjust what you live on. Steve, you need to adjust what you live on. I'm learning that if I'm going to give like the Good Samaritan, I will need to learn a predisposition for giving. Let me say that in slow motion. To learn a predisposition for giving, I have to learn the dispossession of things. I have to learn how to let things go. No, let me say that in slow motion. Sometime between now and the time I die, I will have to learn a different relationship with things. I will have to find something in this world that I value more than possessions. I mean, a pearl of great price a treasure buried in a field kind of thing. I will have to find something in this world that I value more than possessions, and I'll tell you why. Because if I don't find it, then I can't possess anything as I ought. 
My view of things is already jaded, whether I give them away or whether I keep them. God is trying to teach me a disposition, not a spiritual discipline. So I'm not trying to give like Christians, because I know how Christians give. I'm trying to give like Samaritans. It's a fundamentally different kind of giving. Now, what's occurred to me as I looked at this is that these three different kinds of giving are three different expressions, you guys. We sometimes lump all giving together and say, well, it's all the same. It's not yours anymore. Let it go. But as I read the Bible, that simply isn't true. There is a difference between different kinds of giving in the Bible, and it's like the kind of giving that God is teaching me. In systematic giving, He is training my habits. He's teaching me a value system. I'm reinforcing a belief system. That's why I'm giving it regularly, the same amount, the same time, the same part, every week. Because God is reinforcing a value and a belief system in me. The more that I give it, as rote as it seems, it reinforces the grand narrative. When God teaches me to give spontaneously, He's teaching me to participate in something he is doing. It's not happening all the time, but he is saying, Steve, you belong to a community. You belong to a people, and your people are doing something, and I want you to participate. Let it go. When God teaches me sacrificial giving, he's teaching me how to extend my faith. Because I always find a way to give within structures that are comfortable for me. So every now and then, God will say, we need to do something that is completely irrational for you. Because we need to move the furniture, Steve. Do you see it? Tell me you see it. I can't go back. In the Bible, there is a kind of giving called an offering. Happens all the way through the Old Testament. The Latin term for offering is the word offer, O-F-F-E-R-R-E, and all it means is to bestow one's worship. An offering is bestowing to one's deity one's gift. What's important about offerings in the Bible, you guys, is not the percentage. Bible scholars rack their brains over arguing whether 10% is an Old and New Testament or is it just an Old Testament. In my opinion, the question is irrelevant until we answer the other one. There is more time spent describing how an offering is given than the actual amount. Deuteronomy 26 is a classic example of this. He says, when you bring the offering for the poor, put it in a basket, lay it in front of the altar. The priest is to bow down in front of the altar. He is to ask God to take the offering. Then you are to give it to the poor. All of the emphasis is on how it is given, the protocol, the ritual, the system, not simply the amount. So what makes an offering unique is that it is always given to one's deity. It is not given to one's cause. 
It isn't given to a vision. It's not given to an outcome. It's given to one's deity. Because it's never the vision. It's the altar that sanctifies the gift. So when one gives an offering, it creates a bonding or an alignment to the deity he gives it to. That's why he gives it to an altar. That's why it's prescribed by God, because it is God's offering. God never says in the Old Testament, you just give an offering whatever you feel like giving. Do you know why? Because in every believer's life, there ought to be some form of giving, wait for it, that you don't control. He does. Because it's his altar. And he's your God. So the fundamental outcome of offering is discipleship. It makes a disciple. It makes a devotee or a follower out of the person who kneels with his gift at the altar. Are you still tracking? There is another kind of giving in the Old and New Testament. It doesn't use the word. That's supposed to say gift. Just as there are places in the Bible where God prescribes what and how it should be given... There are other places in the Bible where God says, that's up to you. This is what I'm going to do. I want you to participate. But your level of participation is actually up to you. So it's not given regularly. It's not always given at an altar, though sometimes it is, but not always. It is not always given in the same ritual or in the same way. It changes from the amount to the way that it's given. It's a gift. But it's important because it's God's way of saying, Steve, I'm doing something in the world and I want you to participate. I want you to have skin in the game. Give towards that. There is another kind of giving in the Bible, Old and New Testament. I'm trying penmanship best I can. I call sacrifice. When one gives sacrificially, they give above and beyond their ability. So, Barnabas is an example of this. He sells a piece of land and lays the money at the apostles' feet. Once he sells it, he can't sell it again. It's gone. So it's a one-time extraordinary gift. When the woman pours the perfume on Jesus' feet in John chapter 12, she can't do that again because once she pours it, it's not hers anymore and it's a ton of money. So she's out that. It cost her something. She can't get it back. It's an extraordinary one-time offering to her God. It's a sacrifice. What occurs to me is that in a secular age, like the one we live in, where the presence of God in the world is becoming more and more and more, well, absent. Altars are almost unheard of. Sacred spaces where the divine touches earth. 
is almost a thing of the past. So what's happened to Christians in the last 30 to 40 years is that a lot of what used to be offering has become a gift. We're not being taught to lay it at the altar. We're being taught to invest it in a cause for a specific outcome with reports to follow. And while that is a legitimate way of giving, I'll just say it, I think something is lost in the disciples' life if the only kind of giving they have is chasing a vision. I think in an offering there is a bonding that takes place between a person and their God at an altar where they meet. We're not buying outcomes. We don't know what happens to it. What motivates an offering is that one wants to be like his God. And God, by his nature, gives. And so we give because God gave. And we give as God gave. And we give as generously as God gave. And that's the end of it. I'm being taught in today's a pragmatic culture inside the church that, um, that I need to be a better fundraiser. And I think they're right about that. I'm not very good at that. But I was called to make disciples. I was not called to raise funds. I was called to make disciples. And it just so happens that giving is an essential part of discipleship. Because when one gives, one takes on the nature of his God. And the more we do that, the more like him we are. It is not just when we worship it is when we love, and when we love, we give. Which brings me back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Ten years ago, my journey towards soul shift began with a question that had to do with giving. It went like this, happened right out in the atrium. Walking around one day, I had a conversation with the Lord and I said, um, how much of the change that's happening in my life, God, is genuine? And how much is just contrived? How much is artificial? How much is because I'm a pastor and that's what pastors are supposed to do? So I came upon the question of giving. And the question I asked the Lord was, if I gradually give more over time, but I don't like it, does that count? Because I got a feeling it might not. If I give more, but I don't like it, does it count? Is what you want money, or is what you want me? And it occurred to me that the difference between me and the Good Samaritan was in the way that we loved. His love was extravagant. Mine was always guarded. I guarantee it, if we were to break up from this 
auditorium right now and go into a Sunday school class and ask ourselves the question, how can we all give more like the Good Samaritan? I guarantee it. Somebody in the class would raise a question about how far was too far. How much can you give before you've given too much? Where are the boundaries? And what really does it accomplish? Do you realize sometimes we ask how because we don't want to start? We just don't want to start. And so we use all other questions as a defense mechanism and say, once I have it all figured out, then it'll make sense. Then I'll do it. No, you won't, baby. That's false hope. That is false hope. Unless you feel yourself through this, you cannot love like the Good Samaritan. We may talk about boundaries if you want, but understand this. All boundaries do the same thing. They protect something. So the question is, what are we protecting? Because I have a hunch that the Good Samaritan and I are protecting different things. When I get down to it, at the end of the day, I will protect my family. When he gets down to it at the end of the day, he will protect somebody else's family. And that's why it's unsafe. That's why it's unguarded. So I will start the conversation by asking myself, how much do I have to give? And he will start by asking himself, how much do I have to keep? Those are fundamentally different starting points because the heart is in two different places. So the question this morning is, God, how do I get from this kind of heart to that kind of heart? I can't think of anything else to do except to ask for it and give.